0: Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barkers UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we talk about the most popular questions we're getting from our clients at the moment, from worries about government debt levels to questions about whether stock market valuations have gone too far, with Nikki Eggers, Head of Investments, Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer, and Miles Sherry. Senior investment consultant. Hello, welcome to another edition of Word on the Street, where we try to find the signal for investors in amongst the blizzard of noise and, and news flow. So, alongside Will, our, our usual CIO, giving us his insights, our special guest today is Miles Sherry. Miles is one of our seasoned in house client advisors, and he's going to help bring to life some of the sort of key questions that he's hearing from our clients at the moment, which hopefully will also then answer questions that you, our listeners, might be also having. Hopefully that will provide some helpful content for you. So before that, though, Will, it's been quite a busy week so far. I guess mainly the news from Italy is is the sort of standout Mario Draghi or Super Mario, although not everyone feels that, but... It's looking like he's going to be the next prime minister of Italy.
1: Yes, hello, Nikki. Uh, hello, Miles. Uh, yeah, you're right. You ask some, uh, particularly some corners of corners of Germany, he's not he's not considered Super Mario at all. They've got a very different view. But but yes, he has Mario Draghi has been asked to try and form um, a government uh, amidst what could be described as a, a pretty fluid parliamentary uh, situation. And there'll be talks over the next few days. But the feeling seems to be. That he will likely manage to cobble cobble together a coalition using most of the elements of the last coalition, as well as former Prime Minister Berlusconi's um, Forza Italia. So yes, that that seems to be the story at the moment.
0: So less likely, perhaps, to get. Snap elections? Do you think? Yeah, most. I'm very,
1: very wary of being too confident here. Uh, we know uh, that uh, you know what we know about Italian politics, but but most commentators do seem to agree that there is sufficiently there is still sufficiently strong incentive uh, amongst um, amongst the political class to avoid uh, snap elections. But uh, like I say, we shall see.
0: Okay, and then more broadly, I think some of the sort of European focus stories over the last few weeks has has been about this idea of a democratic deficit. So some of Europe's most powerful decision makers aren't directly elected to those seats by the population. Obviously, it cropped up in the Brexit debate, for for sure. I guess from those persistent worries about perhaps too much democracy in Italy, um, as you say, many elections, to to potentially not enough at the European level, do, do markets tend to pay much attention to these kinds of arguments? Or is it all too academic?
1: Yeah, it was a good question. You know, there's a load of interesting work on, on this kind of subject. Of it, a lot of it branches off from a very famous piece of work, a very famous book from some guys called Darren Asimole and um, uh, James Robinson. They co authored a book called uh, Why Nations Fail. Uh, and in a sense, it should be, you know, should have been called Why Nations Succeed in a way. Um, anyway, what they find is a kind of robust relationship between the quality and legitimacy of a country's kind of political and other institutions and ensuing uh, economic growth. And and, the the relationship is obviously the higher quality, the more legitimate, you know, the the, the better the, the growth outcomes over time. I mean, it's a pretty compelling argument if you think about it. It's a very good book as well. Actually, I would really recommend it. Or if you're more of a podcaster, then you can listen to the authors talk about it on a podcast called Development Drums, uh, episode 40 for those of uh, those of interest. But alongside that, or perhaps within that, there's a pretty well established relationship between borrowing costs and democratic um, institutions. But the differences that you're describing are likely a bit too subtle uh, for the market debate, in my opinion. And in some senses, it hinges on this idea of what, you know, the purpose of democracy is. And I'm sorry, we're going a bit deep quite early on this. But, you know, do I as a voter really know enough about governing the country on top of trying to, you know, keep on top of my day job, my children's homework, you know, the new puppy's inability to do its business outside? Um, mm-hmm. You know, and do I believe in my ability to kind of, you know, reasonably reliably select, you know, the right leader or is it more a matter of just being you know the best way to bloodlessly best way we know of to bloodlessly transfer power you know in the in uh, you know as Austrian political philosopher karl popper suggested now the balance between policy stability and legitimacy is always going to be one that we've you know we're going to struggle to perfectly find and hold on to and actually In many ways, Italy's experience over the last century or so is a really good example of that struggle. You know, a reaction to Mussolini's reign was a constitution enacted, I think, in 1946 that spread power so liberally around the economy that governments have tended to come and go like mayflies for much of the much of the period since so, so it's a really complicated debate and again this is another one where i'd say beware of kind of facile strong opinions here uh, it's always much more complicated than it appears and it's to do with sort of genetic makeups of company and uh, countries and things like that so so yeah it's it's, it's just it's a, it's a complicated debate
0: but it sounds like actually quite an intriguing one that um you know the 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 book and and the podcast might well be interesting to absorb so thanks for those recommendations and miles turning to you if i may May. Can you just share what what are some of the top concerns on the mind of of clients and investors that you're hearing at the moment, or indeed opportunities that they're excited about?
2: Yeah, thanks, Nick. It's it's nice to be back on the questioning side of the table again. <laughs> but the um, the concerns are familiar ones, I think, in many ways, and are a bit of a continuation of what was cropping up last year, really. So they relate to the lasting concerns around investment and the worries we all quite understandably have about the future. But one of the topics in focus is around national debt. Now, JP offered some reassurance here on the podcast last year with me actually around this. But since then, the debt pile has just continued to grow as governments, of course, continue the significant policy support in light of the latest lockdowns. And I guess the worries here are twofold, really. So first, how on earth are we actually going to pay back all of this debt? And there's an argument there, of course, to say that this will leave our children a pretty terrible legacy of a fragile economy that's essentially going to be stuck under the weight of all of this borrowing. But the second the second element is also around austerity. Now, we, of course, saw this after the great financial crisis as governments made cuts to spending. In turn, that can be detrimental for the economy and therefore investments. I thought the conversation actually last week on this subject Mm. was very useful. So looking at how um, looking at what, you know, informs policymaking and, and how that's changed. But I think the worries about the levels of debt amongst many people I speak to do indeed persist. So over to you, Will.
1: Uh, yeah, nice for you to be on the questioning <laughs> side. We are, I think, sensibly in some ways, kind of hardwired to worry about debt, certainly at the personal level. You know, we wouldn't, you know, you don't see too much sort of extravagance on that front or, or lack of worry, I guess. that, You know, it is something potentially at a personal level that's quite different. And the problem, however... Is making that leap from kind of personal debt and our thinking and feeling about that to government debt, which is an entirely different kettle of fish. In part because of the state's general modern kind of monopoly on violence and taxes, that's really important. But because of uh, you know tax raising capacity, sorry, but but also because of the longevity of revenue streams that the government commands, you know I will have to pay the debt I owe in my lifetime. Governments have a much longer lifespan in many ways. Now, providing the economy grows faster than the debt pile in the years ahead, then it then it will you know whittle down over time. And as we pointed out before, that the level of interest rates is important too. They have you know they have room in our, our opinion, and many others, to rise quite a bit uh, before they would become problematic with current debt levels, or even debt levels quite above um, these levels um, uh, uh, to, to to become sort of you know problematic. However, you know, I think on this, you know, the interest rate argument is is key, you know, because those arguing that they will remain depressed relative to history have quite a bit of ballast to their argument, frankly. You know, the fact that interest rates have been pooling for several decades in multiple countries suggests that the forces driving interest rates lower are probably more structural than cyclical, you know, more more temporary, you know, in in a sense. And two, they seem to, you know, these interest rates, real interest rates, inflation-adjusted interest rates, have really resisted all the traditional mechanisms or many of the traditional mechanisms that you would expect to lift real interest rates. So, you know, expanding social insurance, rising debt levels, you know, the after-tax profitability of capital, all of those things would argue for actually interest rates to be, real interest rates to be rising over this time, but not. And even some of the kind of plausible explanations for why they... For why they fell in the first place, um, starting to have been sort of weakening in the recent uh, years. So, you know, Ben Bernanke, you know, the famous uh, chair of the uh, Federal Reserve, uh, previous to Janet Yellen, you know, his argument was there was a savings glut, uh, and this was you know part of the reason why interest rates was uh, was was falling down. But actually, the savings glut receded. And a little bit after, you know, the decade after he wrote about this and real interest rates continued to fall. So, you know, our point is, you know, that there is, you know, and there's a very good paper on this. I would recommend for those who really want to get wonky on it. Larry Summers um, and Jason Furman wrote a very detailed explanation of why they were saying what they were saying. You know, if there are still questions, do please get in touch on
2: LinkedIn, I guess. Yeah, look, that all makes a lot of sense to me. But I think one of the other concerns here seems to be that this crisis has essentially resulted in an expansion in the role of the states because governments, let's face it now, I think they're a bigger proportion of GDP or essentially economic output than they previously were. And I've then seen a few talking heads seemingly making a link between larger governments and weaker uh, output growth so interested to get your thoughts there because that doesn't at face value sounds that promising does it
1: no no that's right and so you know the slower your growth obviously the more troublesome you're going to find you know debt to gdp calculations looking forward but i, I think a lot here uh depends on your kind of chosen political ideology uh, you know the lens through which you view you know the the, the political and economic world You know, many will argue, you know, on the sort of small government side that the private sector, you know, companies should be allowed maximum freedom and governments should really stand out of the way to whatever extent is possible. And this is, you know, this is basically how to generate strong growth. Therefore, the bigger the state, the smaller the private sector, the worse your growth outlook. And this all stems from a sort of core idea in economics dating back to you know, the great Adam Smith's uh, Wealth of Nations, you know, really one of the defining kind of textbooks of uh, the economics profession. Um, and this is basically that the market is always going to be, the invisible hand of the market is already, always always going to be better at allocating resources around the economy. Um, and it's going to be much more effective because than us, simply because of something called, you know, bounded rationality, humans, we just lack the capacity to see all the angles. Um, and so, like I said, we're bounded irrational and that, that makes us much less efficient allocators. But uh, an interesting counter-argument here points to the role of the state in innovation and and an underappreciated role uh, of the state in past innovation. Again, I'm sorry, I'm going to make more book recommendation, but I would really recommend Mariana Mazzucato's book on the entrepreneurial state here. But a good example is is DARPA, D-A-R-P-A, and it's the Defense uh, Advanced Research uh, projects agency, part of the US government. That's a very small part of the US government. But the aim of this, this tiny proportion of uh, of the US government is responsible for innovations as far-reaching as global uh, GPS, uh, stealth tech, unmanned aerial vehicles, and an incredible array of sort of in- innovations which uh, have prop up our smartphones and many other sort of consumer design devices or without which our smartphones would not exist. Now, there's no compelling evidence that I've seen um, that the size of government is related to, to the growth rate, particularly not when adjusted for, you know, the pre-existing trend, um, in growth. Besides which, if you think about it, size is just one variable to describe the state. And perhaps, you know, I would say it's one of the least informative. Would size have told you about the incredible technocratic competence that we've seen from Korea and Taiwan in this crisis, for example? And, and the other final point to make, and sorry, this is probably, you know, several Podcasts of, uh, of content that we can do, and I won't come to that. I promise you. But you know, there's there's also a strand of argument that argues that there's less choice in this that you might imagine in terms of how you you know the size of state relative to the economy. Some argue that the degree of ethnic heterogeneity, you know, how ethnically varied your population is, informs this decision. Countries with a higher level of social trust tend to be more ethnically homogenous and have a larger social safety net because it's possibly easier to, to do in a society with a higher degree of social trust now where the causation is and all of that oh gosh it's a complicated question but it shows that this again is something that we want to be wary of just saying that these decisions could be made very easily they're a function again of that dna of a particular country um, and it's very complicated to disentangle and then try and make confident assumptions about what it means for the growth rate
0: and will just taking you back there you mentioned darpa i mean i think i read that that there's an attempt to perhaps try to recreate some of that innovative success, but, but more in the health tech sector.
1: Yeah, God, I was listening to, uh, you may be listening to the same uh, the same interview. I mean, we'll see whether it's successful. But I was listening to an interview with uh, the woman who they lifted out of DARPA to lead this not-for-profit biomedical project. And uh, it was Regina Duggan. And, and she spoke very eloquently of the challenges. But Actually, the other one I was listening to was an interview with a guy called uh, Jeremy O'Brien, who's one of the guys leading the charge in quantum computing. Um, now quantum computing is not an area of expertise for me personally. I was, you know, <laughs> having to rewind all the time to try and work out what the hell he was going on about or what he was talking about. But it's one of those areas. It's one of those areas where we, we may never conceivably we may never crack it and it's one of those things that people have been talking about as a potential it could always remain on the horizon but he was speaking about having functional useful quantum uh, computing capacity by the middle of this decade now the implications of this would be simply you know transformational for the world I promise you I mean some of the things he's talking about really you know the potential to solve riddles that would transform our ability to uh, you know in terms of fighting climate change for instance you know transformative uh, carbon sequestration nuclear fusion and so on you know the the problem solving stuff is is, is absolute capacity is absolutely incredible so to give you a a quote from him just to try and explain it as i understood it uh, he was saying that basically quantum computing is to conventional computing what a warp drive is to a bicycle and that gives you some sense of the scale of kind of potential leapfrogging we could do within the next decade
2: yeah i'm not i'm not ashamed to say this all goes slightly above my head in terms of my understanding Um, and and bear with me because this is going to sound odd at first but your point there on quantum computing leads on quite nicely actually to the next topic which is valuations. now as we always say, Will, this is always a concern, really. But some respected names in the industry are again calling this a bubble. And whilst the retail investor stories of the past week are focused around very specific companies, I think it does add to the feeling of this market possibly being in exuberant territory now rob shared some useful behavioral points last week on this and i know you and the team have made the argument before that you don't think we're in a bubble but even still stocks surely are starting to look a little bit on the expensive side and i think therefore investors perhaps understandably are worried it might be a bit late to, to get involved and i know you're going to say interest rates uh, play a part here of course they do but maybe things like quantum computing could also change future growth prospects and i guess that's a bit like your favorite shipping containers uh, story that you've you know you've referenced on this before
0: yeah it's a bit
1: sexier than shipping containers isn't it? <laughs> but yeah well maybe not to some but 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 yeah i mean this is such a problem psychologically uh, behaviorally with investing i think when prices are rising it feels too late and we want to wait for a pullback uh, and when that pullback comes and prices are falling it feels too early too risky you know i mean it's we all feel like that don't you Right now, there are good, pretty justifiable reasons uh, for valuations to be where they are, in our opinion, not just the level of interest rate, but also the wider macroeconomic regime, the type of companies that are proportionally dominating the indices, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but, oh, we basically just don't see valuation as an impediment to, to investment at the moment. And I think, you know, always keep in mind, exactly as you're saying, you know, that's the, the prize of, you know, the adoption of and, and the, the sort of problem-solving capacity of things like quantum computing and all that innovation—that's the thing you're investing for in a diversified portfolio. The future prospects for innovation, as long as you think those are alive and well, then today's valuations should not represent an impediment to you getting uh, invested.
2: So that's the long-term story, but we of course get uh, get challenges on the on the short-term uh, side of things. And there's a fair argument to say a lot of good news maybe is baked into the price of stocks. And who knows, it may not take much for markets to have a bit of a wobble in the coming weeks and months, particularly, of course, if we see more dangerous variants of the virus crop up. I think equally, the question is how stock markets over the past few months have generally risen, despite continued and elongated lockdowns, which may, of course, also sadly lead to more unemployment uh, longer term. And again, these seem to be very fair points at face face value.
1: Yeah, no, that's right. And I I think, you know, I mean, there are always risks. And we devote, as you know... (laughs) you know, a a lot of time to analysing and talking about the ones we think we can see. But right now, that very challenging short-term picture is balanced out to some extent by a very believable, you know, consumer spending jam tomorrow story. The combination of, you know, government transfers to consumers around the world from the, uh, you know, consumers suffering from the effects of lockdowns and wider pandemic effects, uh, alongside kind of restricted spending opportunities, that means or points to a huge wave of consumer spending waiting to splash onto the economy uh, once the um, once the pandemic recedes. Uh, there is, you know, more fiscal stimulus likely coming in the U.S. It, it, it's still to be determined, uh, uh, you know, in terms of size and time. But the odds of Democrats going with budget the, uh, the budget reconciliation tactic li- likely means that the higher odds of uh, the Democrats seemingly going with the budget reconciliation ta- uh, tactic that's usually what the people are saying likely means. You know, a little bit slower legislation, but maybe bigger size. That seems what people are arguing. But like I say, there are always risks. And there was an interesting piece from the IMF uh, this week about social unrest after past pandemics, highlighting just one of the many things. You know, uh, uh, you know, dangers ahead. You know, all of this you know, potentially could result in more inflation as well. Uh, but we still, you know, putting all of that together, we still think it's a good in- entry point for long-term uh, investors.
2: Yeah, look, we could go on for hours. Uh, really, will couldn't we? But. I guess the potential for inflation would be one that we are well prepared for, though, because as regular listeners will know, whilst you and my team have generally reduced our allocation to government bonds, some of that exposure is now invested in inflation-linked bonds. Equally, of course, a decent chunk has also been added to commodities. And JP explained very well um, a couple of weeks back the change to our long-term strategic asset allocation, and that is a very rigorous Uh, And complex process. I certainly trust it and the experts uh, within your team. But just because we've added to a particular asset class, remember it doesn't necessarily mean we are suddenly really bullish on it, because after all, asset allocation is all a relative game. But that said, whilst we can't solely rely on history, we have to be very careful with this um, in terms of using it as an accurate guide. Commodities tend to do well during periods of inflation, which will hopefully add some extra ballast to portfolios should inflation rise. And I think the other final point here on inflation is a basic one, but I often think the simplest points um, are actually the most valid in many ways. You and the team are expecting cash rates to be very close to zero for a good few years to come. I really don't think that's going to be uh, deemed a controversial prediction by any means. But this also means that if inflation does creep higher, the value of any excess cash that investors hold will, of course, diminish. And arguably, that makes the case for investing Uh, stronger over the longer term, where, of course, it is suitable for individuals. Because after all, a few years ago, we may have got, say, 1% to 2% interest on our cash savings. But clearly, that's a luxury that we no longer have. And as you've said before, whilst in reality, no one knows how the next few years will actually play out. That's, of course, why you cast that investment net as far and wide as possible. I think the odds are that expected returns for sensibly diversified portfolios have probably come down a tad uh, a little bit, but the key point to remember, though, there is that the extra return investors may receive above the risk-free rate. and that's essentially cash in layman's terms, that actually hasn't changed too much. And I think that's a really important point to understand.
0: Yeah, and and, and I think Miles also, you know, what you highlight there is is really key, which is, you know, that strategic asset allocation is is a mix at different sort of risk profile levels, but a, but a mix of a diversified group of assets this isn't about cherry picking or or placing all our bets in one area and and I know you know as as you guys were talking there about bubble or no bubble whilst you know people always be concerned about valuations I think if you're if you're in the market for what we like to call the sort of get rich slow scheme, which which is diversified investing, building up that investment plan over a period of time, then even even if there is a correction, as long as you're you're committed, then that shouldn't impact you negatively over a significant time horizon. And I know Will, you 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 put a very sweet picture of your of your dog on linkedin a bit of clickbait there everyone everyone loves a little cute puppy but but talking there about that difference between saving and investing and you know really ensuring that people are recognizing that you know especially as we talk about the fear of missing out the excitement the froth that's out there with some of the what are potentially being viewed as get Get rich quick schemes or, or ways of trading—that's just not a, a modus operandi that we would in any way recommend. That's a different activity. If it's fun and and you're not hurting anyone, then then go ahead. But when it comes to uh, you know to growing and and protecting. Your future—that's—that's that's probably not the way to do it. So, listen. With that, I will thank you, Will. Thank you very much, Miles, for being bad cop. But I think Will did all right there, didn't he? <laughs> um, and we'll definitely get you back. So, um, thanks very much. All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.